God has given us a comprehensive task. In 2 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul describes it this way. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are of God, casting down arguments. And whatever exalts itself against God, so we bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What is the Christian task? It's to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Jesus described our task in these terms in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make all nations my disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. It's nothing less. Jesus is doing nothing less here than commissioning his disciples to go forth and conquer the earth in his name, with his truth, with his gospel, that the nations might be taught to obey him, to obey all his commands. Uh, I think the greatest Christian philosopher and theologian of the 20th century uh, was Cornelius Van Til. Uh, Van Til put it this way. He said, our task is exterminating evil from the whole universe. We must fight sin everywhere we see it. How's that sound? Your task is to exterminate evil from the whole universe. That's what God wants us to do. That is God's program for us. Now, if that is the program, you might ask, okay, where do we start? Uh, Obviously, we live in a world that is full of evil. If we're going to stamp it out, if we're going to stamp sin out, where should we start? Some would probably want to start with our politics in D.C. Okay? Probably a lot of folks would. Okay? Some might want to start with uh, our entertainment in Hollywood. There is a lot of evil in those places. The reality is we see a lot of evil all around us in our world, in our culture, in our nation. We see a lot of evil in our neighbor, even in our fellow Christians. Should the war start in any one of those places? Well, listen again to Van Til. The believer has a comprehensive task. It is the task of exterminating evil from the whole universe. He must begin the program in himself. His first battle is to fight sin within his own heart. This will remain his first battle till his dying day. And Van Til is exactly right. Before we can go forth conquering and to conquer, before we can go forth conquering the nations for Christ, before we can really exterminate evil from our culture, we must conquer ourselves or we must be conquered. Before we can deal with sin out in the world, we have to commit to dealing with our own indwelling sin, the sin that lurks in our own hearts. To be a Christian means first and foremost, you are at war with evil in your own heart. Yes, you're at evil, you're at war with evil in the world. But that war against evil starts with the evil in your own heart. And if you ask, well, how do we wage this war against evil in our own hearts? Well, that war on evil in our own hearts, that war on sin in our own lives starts with confession. It starts with a confession of sin. You have to identify the enemy before you can kill the enemy. 
You have to identify the enemy in order to attack the enemy and exterminate the enemy. You have to identify the enemy before you can root it out of your life. And that's what confession of sin is all about. To confess your sin is to declare war on your sin. And that is the first step in the extermination of evil. It starts on the inside, inside of each one of our hearts. Now, last week, we looked at what it means to confess our sin to God. And I I pointed out the confession... Of our sin to God is, is that's really the starting point. We uncover our sin before Him so He can cover it up. We uncover our sin before God so He can cover it with the blood of Christ. We get it out in the open with God so He can forgive us our sin and empower us and equip us to turn away from it and overcome it and have victory over it. Regular confession before God is a kind of spiritual housekeeping. You're keeping the temple of the Holy Spirit, your own heart, your body, clean. You want your your body to be a clean house for God to dwell in. And the way we clean things up, we're always making messes, the way we clean things up is through confession. If we refuse to confess sins we have actually committed, if we say we are without sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. When we confess our sin It's as if we're turning ourselves in, like a criminal turning himself in. We condemn ourselves so that God might acquit us. We humble ourselves so that God can exalt us. But it's not enough to confess our sins to God. James 5.16 says we must confess our sins to one another. So our fellow soldiers on the battlefield can help us slay our sin. And today we want to unpack exactly what James is asking us to do and why. We're going to look at several aspects of this confession of sin we are to make to one another. How to confess, to whom we confess, what we confess. And I'm going to wrap it up at the end uh, with just a few further considerations. It's clear James wants the church to be a society of mutual confession. He wants the church to be characterized by grace. So it's a place where we can make mutual confession to one another. He wants the church to be a place where every church member is a confessor in both senses. He confesses his sin to others and he receives confession from others. And all this is, as he says here, so we can pray for one another and help one another gain victory over sin in our lives, leading to our final healing, our final salvation. Certainly when we've sinned against someone and it has hurt our relationship with them, we should confess that sin. We should go to the person, we should name the sin to them, and we should seek their forgiveness. And of course, the person against whom we have sinned should be ready and willing to grant that forgiveness, to pronounce absolution. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled with your brother. That's how high a priority Jesus puts on reconciled relationships within the community of believers. It's even about tithing. Before you put your offering in the plate, go set things right with your brother. The problem we have is that when relationships break down, we're often really good at confessing other people's sins, at pointing out the sins of other people, and and often using the sins 
of the other person, using the other guy's sins as an excuse for my own. Well, I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't done this. And we end up confessing other people's sins instead of our own. Well, here Jesus says, confess your sins against your brother to your brother. Jesus wants you to confess as if you were the only one at fault. You may not be. But Jesus wants you to confess as if you were the only one at fault. If a relationship is damaged, repair it. If you sinned against someone, drop everything and go confess it. If you were the one sinned against, and you can't just let love cover it. That's always an option. But if you can't just let love cover that sin, go to the person and talk to them about it. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, Jesus talks about that. If your brother sinned against you and love can't simply cover it, you go talk to them. In fact, it's, it's interesting. James is going to have more to say about this very issue. He's going to wrap the letter up with instructions about correcting uh, a sinning brother or an erring brother. So we'll deal with that when we get there. Let me move on to something else here. The breadth of confession James has in view. I don't think James is limiting this confession to those sins that you have specifically committed against other people. James simply says, confess your sins to one another... And pray for one another that you may be saved. James wants us to be open and transparent with others in the body of Christ. Sharing sins that burden our consciences. Sharing our sin struggles with one another. So we can pray with one another, for one another. So we can help one another along the pathway to final salvation. We are called to fight this battle, but we're not called to fight it alone. No Christian is a one-man army. We are part of platoons, and we need one another in this fight if we're going to fight well. This confession to one another has its goal of strengthening one another's faith and strengthening the bonds of Christian community. That's always the goal of this confession of sin. It is to strengthen one another in the faith and to strengthen the bonds of community between us. When you go to confess your sin to a brother, that breaks down walls between us. We get to know one another better so we can love one another more faithfully and more fully. Now, obviously, you cannot confess your sins to anyone and everyone, nor can you confess every single sin you commit. We don't even know what all of our sins are. Uh, I would say, even if you made an effort and you said, I want to confess every single sin I've committed to someone else, that would actually engage you in sin because you would spend so much time doing that, you would be neglecting other responsibilities. So you can't do that. You can't confess every sin you have committed. So what do we confess? We should target especially those sins that are troubling for us in some kind of way. Perhaps because our conscience bothers us. And so it would be good to get this off your chest, so to speak, get this off your heart. And so you want to confess your sin to a brother so you can hear a brother in Christ look you in the eye and say to you, God forgives you and God loves you and Jesus died for you and I love you too. Sometimes we just need that from one another. You need somebody to remind you of things, yeah, you already know, but you need to hear it with your own own ears. You need to see a brother do this for you. 
My guess is that a lot of people today who seek out professional therapy or professional counseling of some sort are really looking for this and could actually be healed by this, by this kind of process of confession and absolution with their brothers in the body of Christ. It's not so much that they need a professional counselor or therapist. Sometimes that's you do. Sometimes that's the case. But a lot of times I don't think people need that so much. They really just need someone to remind them, yes, God loves you. Your sins are forgiven. We need to hear that again and again in the Christian life. I think it's really, really interesting. You know, this used to be very common practice among Christians for Christians to confess sins to their pastor and elders or to one another in the body of Christ, as this talks about here. The decline of the practice of confession in the church correlates to the rise of secular therapy and psychoanalysis. As confession of sin in the church declined, secular therapy rose, I think, in large part to take its place. Because what are people really trying to do? People are really trying to figure out what to do with their shame and their guilt. Because they know, we all know deep down inside, behind those feelings of guilt is the fact of guilt. Guilt's not just a feeling, it's an objective fact about you before God, you're standing before God. Uh, Your guilt feelings are not just feelings, behind those feelings is the fact of your sin. And that's the real problem. That's really where the guilt and the shame come from. They're not social constructs. That's what so much of secular therapy wants to say. Well, you feel guilty because society made you feel guilty or because of your parents, how your parents raised you, they made you feel guilty. The reality is that being told that doesn't make the guilt or the shame go away. What we really need is forgiveness. And secular therapy can never provide that. You take God out and there is no way to get that guilt absolved. And what we all need more than anything else as the the foundation bedrock to build our lives upon is absolution. We need to know that our sins are forgiven. And because of the kind of creatures we are, we can't just tell ourselves, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. We need to hear it with our own ears pronounced by somebody else. We need to hear a human voice declare to us that our sins have been forgiven. You get to hear that every Sunday in the liturgy. But sometimes we need that in a more personalized, face-to-face kind of way. And confessing sin to one another provides an opportunity to do that. Another category of sin you should confess. Habitual sins you have difficulty shaking off and breaking free from. Getting sin out in the open where you can have accountability. Where other soldiers who are fighting the good fight can pray for you and pray with you and share their battle tactics, ways that they have gotten victory over the same kinds of sins. Confessing your sin to one another so you can have that kind of accountability and get that kind of counsel from a brother or sister in Christ. That is really helpful as well. I think that's another aspect of what James has in view. Now, we do need to be careful here. If you think about, well, who am I supposed to confess my sins to in this kind of way? You can really only be close friends. I mean really close friends with a handful of people. One of the problems that, uh, there's a lot of problems social media has created. But one of, I think, the biggest problems social media has created for us is it has cheapened the meaning of that word friend. It's cheapened what we mean by friendship. 
Social media also provides far too many opportunities for people to foolishly share things that don't need to be shared in that kind of form. The reality is we just weren't designed to bear our souls before the whole world or before the whole World Wide Web, as the case might be. Sometimes I fear there's a a kind of unhealthy spiritual exhibitionism where people think that to be real or to be authentic or maybe even to be spiritual and pious, I've got to share everything about myself with everyone. That is very rarely helpful. Very rarely is that helpful to the people who hear all about this. Very rarely is it helpful to the person who does the sharing. You need to be selective in what you confess and with whom you confess. And when it comes to to what sins we confess, we also have to keep this in mind. The point of confession is mutually building one another up. And the reality is there are some sins that just don't need to be confessed because they would hurt the relationship instead of help it. Uh, I remember the very first sermon I preached at the church I was working for uh, in Austin, Texas. Uh, you know, I was 22 or 23 years old, and so obviously very inexperienced with any kind of teaching. But uh, I was preaching to the congregation. It was a much bigger congregation than this one. We were, you know, maybe five, six hundred people. So as you were preaching, it's not like you were going to make eye contact with everybody in the room. It was just too big of a congregation for that. So I preached my sermon uh, on Hebrews 12. And, and I felt pretty good about it. I think it was a pretty good sermon, especially for a first, uh, first stab at it. And a guy from the church, friend uh, of mine, came to me after the service, you know, as we're standing around in the narthex talking. He comes up to me and he says, I just want you to know, I fell asleep during your sermon. And I feel really bad about that, and I am sorry. Okay. I hope I'm not oversharing here. Uh, I'll just say that confession was one I didn't need to hear. <laughs> it was not great for my, <clears throat> my confidence level as a new preacher. I didn't know he had fallen asleep. And I would have been happy never knowing that he fell asleep. I'm sure that after he made that confession, he probably felt a whole lot better. And I'm glad I got that off my chest. But I went away feeling a whole lot worse. Okay. That's not the point of confession. You have to be wise in what and how and to whom you confess. Uh, We should not just confess anything to anybody. That may not be helpful. Sometimes confession can actually hurt rather than help. So we have to exercise wisdom. Let me give you another dimension of this. Confession of your sins to one another uh, is obviously bound to keep us humble. Confessing our sins to one another... Uh, is a humbling process. When you confess your sins to another person, you've got to humble yourself, really in a way, surrender your dignity before that person. But making confession and hearing confession of others is a vital part of Christian community. That's what James is telling us here. This is one of those things that, that marks the Christian community. And what it means, you know, it's not just this mechanical process of saying, I sinned in ways X, Y, and Z, and oh, you are forgiven. What it really means is we've got to be willing and able to deal with one another's messes. To roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty engaging with one another, with the deep issues of life. 
sharing your sins with another person is really a way of sharing your life, opening yourself up, making yourself an open book to another person. It can be very easy to show up at church and just have very shallow, surface-level relationships with each other. And, and then say, okay, well, I'm just going to be content with that. that. James won't let us do that. He's saying we must have deeper relationships with one another, deep enough that we can confess sin to one another. I'll tell you something else. It's very easy to show up at church on a Sunday and think, as you look around the room, am I the only sinner here? Am I the only one who's had a really rough week? Am I the only one who yelled at my kids this week? Am I the only one who uh, got angry with my spouse this week? It's so easy to look around and you see everybody's dressed up and everybody looks pretty good. and It's so easy to look around and think, wow, everyone else here has it all together except for me. Every other family in the church seems to be picture perfect except for mine. Don't you believe that? Don't you believe that for a minute because it just isn't true. When we all come in that door on a Sunday morning, there are two things we all know about each other. Two things we all already know about each other. One is each one of us here is made in God's image and has value and worth for that reason. And the second thing we all know about everybody else who comes to that door is that each person here is a sinner. Each person here has rebelled against God. Each person here has violated God's word, God's law in some way, probably in a lot of ways, over the course of the last week. And we know that because we are all sinners, even the people who appear to have it all together still have sins that plague them and struggles that weigh them down. Every single one of us is this way. I mean, unless Jesus walks through that door, every single one of us is a sinner. And we've got to know that about each other. So if you confess your sin to a fellow believer, that fellow believer is not just a fellow believer. He is also a fellow sinner. And unless he just doesn't understand what it means to be a believer, when you confess your sins to another believer, they're not going to laugh at you or mock you for it. In fact, they might cry over it with you instead because they're right there in the trenches with you fighting the same battle. We are all in the fight of our lives, all called to exterminate evil from the depths of our hearts. No easy task. We can't do it alone. It is true. There are some of us who are more mature than others. Some are further down that journey, further along in our walk. With others. Some may have gained more victories over sin than others. Some, because they were wise or obedient in their younger years, have not made messes of their lives that others are still trying to clean up. Yes, there are all those differences, but all of us fall short of what we ought to be in all kinds of ways. And we need to know that and remember that about one another. It's been well said the church is not a museum for pristine saints. It is a hospital for sick sinners. Sick sinners who want to be healed. A lot of different ways to think about this, but here's one. Every Sunday service is a triage. That's what the liturgy is, a a, a triage. Coming to church is like coming into the emergency room to get the, the kind of spiritual care 
that you need, that your soul needs, broken as it is by sin, you come in here and you get bandaged up so you can go back out on the battlefield and fight for another week against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what we're doing. You may know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, I've spoken about Bonhoeffer before. Uh, I've told you his story before. He was a German theologian, a Luther, uh, a Lutheran uh, pastor and uh, professor uh, in the 1930s. And uh, he ended up getting executed just days before he would have been released by the Allied powers. He ended up getting executed by the Nazis because of his role in uh, an attempt to assassinate Hitler. Okay, so he, I mean, if you're looking for a good guy and a kind of hero, he checks a lot of the boxes. Uh, his life and ministry were cut short, but he did amazing things with the time that he had. And the few years he had, uh, one thing he did is he wrote a great deal. Very prolific speaker, but also uh, writer. Prolific, prolific preacher, but also wrote uh, a great deal. And one of his best books, maybe his very best book, is called Life Together. And he wrote this book for students in his underground seminary. He started an underground seminary to train students for ministry uh, during the Nazi regime. And he wanted these men he was training for the pastorate to experience real Christian community, to build build strong bonds of uh, of fellowship and friendship with one another. And so in the book, he explores what Christian fellowship is all about. He explores the bond of brotherhood that exists between believers. As we are all made one in Christ Jesus, as we are all forgiven in Christ Jesus, as we are all redeemed in Christ Jesus, what does that oneness that we share mean? Towards the end of the book, he encourages this practice of confessing sin. And of course, he cites James 5.16. We're going to share our lives, he says. We must share our sins and our struggles. If the church is going to be a community of grace, If the church is going to have this culture of love, then we must be able to share our sins and our burdens with one another. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says here. I wish I could read even more of this to you. It's so good. But let me just pick out a few excerpts here to read to you. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. That is, he who is alone who won't confess his sin to another. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, despite corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship, and by this he really means kind of the self-righteous fellowship. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sins from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. And so we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. He goes on, he says, but the fact is, we are sinners. He says, in confession, that is in confession of sin, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. 
when confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders, he gives up all his evil, he gives his heart to God, and he finds the forgiveness of all his sin in the fellowship of Jesus and his brother. If a Christian is in the fellowship of confession with a brother, he will never be alone again anywhere. And so in confession, the breakthrough to a new life occurs where sin is hated, admitted, and forgiven. There, the break with the past is made. In confession, the Christian begins to forsake his sins. Their dominion is broken. From now on, the Christian wins victory after victory. What happened to us in baptism is bestowed upon us anew in confession. We are delivered out of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That is joyful news. Confession is the renewal of the joy of baptism. Bonhoeffer is exactly right. In confession, all these breakthroughs happen. The breakthrough to new life, the breakthrough to joy, the breakthrough to real community. These kinds of mutually edifying friendships within the body should characterize the life and culture of the church. The church should be a place of honesty where we don't hide sin because hiding sin breeds hypocrisy. Instead, the church should be a place where sin is exposed. Sin doesn't want to be found. So what do we do? We drag it out into the open. And there, when sin is exposed, it can be confronted with the mercy and the power of the gospel. Now, I want to wrap this up with a few additional thoughts. What I just, all that I just said, that's the sermon I wanted to preach to you. But now I want to add a few footnotes to this. Uh, because I think these things are important too. And I don't want any of this to be misunderstood or misused in our present context. So think of these as now footnotes to the sermon. First footnote. The focus has been on confessing our sins to others. But what about receiving someone's confession? It takes just as much humility to hear a confession as well. To hear a confession well, as it does to make confession well. Let me say that again. It takes just as much humility to hear a confession well, as it does to make a confession well. We think, oh, I've got to humble myself and confess my sin. But you know, you've got to humble yourself to hear a confession as well. If no one ever confesses their sin to you, or if they only do so very begrudgingly, You might not be the kind of person that people find approachable in this way. If you want to be the kind of person who can have this kind of relationship with others, you've got to be the kind of person, the kind of friend to whom others will want to confess. You need to become known as the kind of person who is approachable, who is trustworthy, who has wisdom to share, who is marked by mercy, who knows how to give grace because... Well, you've got your own battle scars from your own fight against sin. You've got to be the kind of person, you know, every, every Lord's Day in our confession of sin, we use these words. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on us. If you want people to see you as a confessor, somebody that they can share their sins with, you've got to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Your character has to reflect God's own character. You have to be humble. Now, this doesn't mean you wouldn't say something hard for the person to hear. Hearing their confession and 
providing them counsel might mean saying some very difficult things. There's no doubt about that. I'm not saying you become a, a, a pushover, that you just get all squishy. No, but you do have to be humble and approachable and trustworthy. You have to be known as a merciful and gracious person. This is how John Calvin put it, capturing the mutuality that should characterize our confession of sin to one another. Calvin says, let us take the apostles' view, which is simple and open, namely that we should lay our infirmities out to one another to receive among ourselves mutual counsel, mutual compassion, and mutual consolation. Then, as we are aware of our brother's infirmities, let us pray to God for these. If a brother shares something with you, what should, what should it do? Besides this mutual consolation, it should drive you to pray with and for that brother. That's what James says. Here's another footnote. To confess your sins, obviously you have to know what they are. But do not let your confession of sin descend into what I would call morbid introspection. Where you get overly introspective. This is a real danger. Certainly there is a place for self-examination in the Christian life. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says, examine yourselves. But there's also a danger of overdoing it, of getting too introspective, too obsessed with our own feelings, too obsessed with our own sins, too obsessed with our own motivations. And all too often this morbid introspection leads us to self-loathing and self-flagellation. And sometimes people think that's what's really pious. Is this self-loathing and self-flagellation. So I prove my righteousness, prove my virtue. The reality is we don't need to dwell very much on our sin to confess it. And we certainly don't need to spend time beating ourselves up for our sin. The reality is the human heart is a labyrinth. It is a maze. And it is easy for us to get lost in our own hearts. You can get lost in the darkness of your own soul. Now, see, what the world is going to tell you is that you've got to look within continually because that's where the solutions are. That's where the answers are. It's all of your you know, follow your heart kind of stuff that, that Disney gives you, the gospel according to Disney. But that's not where the solution is going to be found. Remember this. The world is going to tell you the problem is outside of you and the solution is inside of you, but that is backwards. The gospel says the problem is inside of you and the solution is outside of you because the solution is Christ and his cross. Once when Martin Luther's good friend Philip Melanchthon was struggling with being overly introspective and wondering, I wonder if I'm really worthy and I really a Christian because I, I sinned today. Martin Luther wrote a letter back to Melanchthon and he said, go sin Boldly. (laughs) Be bold as a sinner. Go sin boldly and then go confess it boldly at the cross. Luther said the whole gospel is outside of you. And there's a very real sense in which that's true. And we must remember it. What God does inside of us by his spirit is gospel as well. But in the sense that Luther meant it, it's really true. We've got to look outside of ourselves to Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. So, yeah, you do have to look within. You've got to look within to see the depth of your sin, to know what your sins are. But if you stare into the abyss too long, it might start staring back at you. And you don't want that. You don't want to go there. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. If you get too introspective, too curved in on yourself, you actually will get too self-absorbed, too self-focused. And that's going to damage your assurance. It's actually just going to lead to more sin. What I would say is this, anytime your conscience feels the pang of guilt, 
for something you've done. Immediately run to Christ and to his cross and just leave it there. And anytime those pangs of guilt come back in your conscience, keep going back to the cross again and again and again. Finally, one last footnote. Know that confession leads to courage. While refusing to confess leads to cowardice. See, if you refuse to confess your sin, those guilt feelings build up. And what happens when those guilt feelings build up? Well, the guilty can be manipulated. Those who feel guilty are easy to manipulate. Those who know they're forgiven cannot be manipulated. Scripture says the guilty are afraid of a rustling leaf. Proverbs says the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. When you know you are righteous before God, that God has forgiven your sins and declared you righteous in Christ Jesus, his son, then you are as bold and as courageous as a lion. Nothing can can, can shake you. Nothing can rattle you because you've got a clean conscience. But if you've got a bad conscience, well, then you're going to be afraid of everything and anything. Because that guilt is going to eat away at you. It's going to gnaw at you continually. Now, this is what you need to understand. In our day, one of Satan's grand strategies against believers is to stir up false guilt through false accusation. Satan seeks to weaken God's people by pushing us into false guilt. Our culture will try to get us to confess even when we have not sinned. Our culture will try to, to try to get us to confess things that are not sin. So you'll find yourself falsely accused by Satan through the world's agents. Or, or you may find that the world wants you to call something a sin that is not a sin. So here's the rule. When you have sinned according to the law of God, confess it and forsake it. But when you have not sinned according to the law of God, do not confess No matter what everybody else around you is trying to get you to do. If you have not sinned, do not confess. Do not make a false confession. And the reality is confessions made to appease people, confessions made to appease a mob, never work anyway. It just emboldens the mob to accuse you of something else. Because there's no real absolution, there's no real forgiveness there. The mob, the world, is not going to forgive you. They're just going to accuse you of something else. And we've seen this play out many, many times. Christians today are facing this in all kinds of ways. Someone will bring a a false charge against a Christian. They'll say that we are bigots or that we're racist or that we're sexist or that we're homophobic. And we simply have to resist those accusations and stand our ground. But I see so many Christians cave on just this point. There there was an article a couple weeks ago uh, I saw on AL.com, and it was about something that happened at the University of North Alabama. Uh, The student body president there posted a picture on some kind of social media where he was wearing a T-shirt that had a rainbow because this was in June during uh, Pride Month. He's wearing a T-shirt with a rainbow on it, and it said, born this way, with a question mark, and then it said, you must be born again. In other words, the the message was against the LGBTQ movement. His shirt was telling gays, you can't, even if you say I was born this way, that's not an excuse. You must be born again. You must come to Jesus. Now, we could question the wisdom of wearing that T-shirt. I'm not really a big fan of T-shirt evangelism myself. Uh, That's not the way I tend to evangelize. But as you can imagine, this caused a big controversy on campus. 
And very quickly, a petition was circulating, calling on uh, the student body president to uh, resign. Uh, you know, he was accused of being homophobic, of making campus unsafe for gay students, violating the university's commitment to diversity, equality, inclusion. You know, you know all the things that were said in a situation like this. And so what did this student body president do, professing Christian? He apologized. He confessed his sin of offending gay students with the message on his T-shirt. And this is what he said. He said, I'm deeply sorry that my Instagram story offended members of our community. I now see the story from a different perspective and apologize. You have shown me I have much work to do, and I ask for your forgiveness and grace as I strive to be a better leader and servant to the students. Now, I would say, and I think he probably knows this deep down, that is a false confession. That's not a true confession. That is false. That's a false confession of false guilt for a false sin. Here's what you need to understand. If you ask the question, okay, so how do you stand up to this? If you want to avoid to caving into pressures to make a false confession to the world, then you must make a true confession to God. Again, a clean conscience leads to courage. Those who do not confess their sin will have shame and guilt eat away at their courage and undermine their courage. And then they can be pushed around. Then they are easy to manipulate. Unconfessed sin makes us weak, fearful, and easy to manipulate. A bad conscience makes us vulnerable to accusations. But when we live with clear consciences, because we have confessed our sin to God and to one another, then we can be bold. Then we can be bold in speaking and standing for the truth, in resisting false accusations, and in fighting the good fight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.